All right, welcome to stage three. Unless you're in Toronto or in Peel, you guys are still in stage two. You'll get there eventually, and hopefully everybody's going to um, act responsibly as we enter stage three and still wash your hands, keep a physical distance, wear those masks. Uh, by the way, Air Transat resumed commercial flights yesterday. Did you hear about this? They launched a small schedule after a four-month suspension due to the pandemic, they began flying three domestic and three transatlantic routes yesterday, with another 18 set to start in August. Air Transat's first international routes, Montreal to Toulouse, Montreal to Paris, and Toronto to London. The three domestic flights, Montreal-Toronto, Toronto-Montreal, Toronto-Vancouver. France and the United Kingdom recently began allowing people to enter from a list of countries, including our very own, and the UK is requiring Canadians to self-isolate for 14 days upon arrival, but France has no restrictions on Canadians. I was reading uh, a headline that said a uh, total of 30 flights have landed in Canada in the last two weeks with at least one confirmed case of COVID-19 on board, but passengers on the, those planes may not have been directly informed of their exposure risk. Here to talk about it, Professor Colin Furness, the infectious control epidemiologist at University of Toronto. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Good morning. Okay, so passengers are apparently not notified directly by the federal uh, public health authorities to get tested if they're on one of these flights. How do we find out if our flight has been exposed to somebody who has COVID-19? It seems to be a pretty confusing situation that, that has fallen into a blind spot because contact tracing is done provincially. It's done by, by provincial health authorities, but airlines are, are accountable and regulated by the federal authorities. So I'm hoping that if a case shows up in Ontario, for example, and they report during contact tracing that they were on a particular flight, uh, that the, the province is able to, or the provincial public health unit, is able to get information from the airlines and then do the contact tracing. That puts a huge onus on, um, on public health authorities because a lot of people sit in an airplane. So to have to individually call a couple hundred people, um, that, is a, that is a lot of work. It's something the airlines could help with, but um, mm. my understanding is that airlines are just not doing it. So they're, Why? They're, well, I mean, I think airlines are, have a lot invested in convincing people that there's no danger in flying. And of course, that's exactly the opposite. Flying is something that nobody should do right now unless they absolutely have to. And even then, they should be extremely concerned. So, but, but if the, presumably the airline wants to sell more and more seats, they, they want to, they're, they're trying to sell middle seats. They want to fill their aircraft. I think that's um, their, their, primary, their primary duty seems to be to their shareholders rather than public health. And, you know, that's disappointing to me. Dr. Furness, what you said about flying being risky, uh, that goes contrary to what a professor at Harvard University wrote in a piece that um, was published in the Washington Post in May. He said that the ventilation systems in airplanes meet the standards for isolation rooms that treat COVID-19 patients, and it, they're recommended by the U.S. Centers of, for Disease Control and Prevention, and that the, the planes are, are not really vectors of disease because if they were, with all the people that travel by plane every year, we would have so many documented disease outbreaks and we're just not seeing that. What do you say to that? 
I think that is uh, an assumption rather than a conclusion, and I think it's an irresponsible statement to make. We know now that small droplets are a cause for concern with COVID. This was this big uh, furor with the WHO a few weeks ago where 139 scientists wrote in to say, look at the converging evidence. We still don't know, but if the small droplets matter, then whatever ventilation system an airplane has no longer really matters. Uh, so that's something to consider. The other thing to consider is if it's really hard to do contact tracing on airplanes because because of what we just talked about, it's pretty hard to find. In other words, an absence of evidence, not actually finding a smoking gun on an airplane, does not make airplanes safe. And we also have to consider um, that it's not just sitting in the airplane next to people who have COVID. It's sitting next to them in the, in the airport lounge. It's sitting next to them or standing next to them in lineups. Air travel is, is, is about being in a crowd. <laughs> it's always about being in a crowd. And we know that being in a crowd indoors for extended periods of time is a huge risk factor for COVID. So we may not have the clearly documented chain of transmission involving airplanes, but honestly, it's hard to imagine that airplanes are safe. It's just, there's, there's nothing I can say that makes me think they're safe. Well, we talked about the fact that airlines might not want to uh, let people know that they could have been in contact with somebody who has tested positive for COVID. Uh, But WestJet keeps a running tally of COVID-19 impacted flights on its blog. And I think that's incredibly responsible of them. They say we're doing this to inform the public at large and to aid the media in assisting public health officials in disseminating this information as quickly and as broadly as possible. Good for them. But you say that Transport Canada could have a role in this. What is that? Well, I think, so WestJet is not, they're, they're not obstructing, I guess. It, it, Air Canada feels like it's, it's being a little bit more passive. Uh, but there's a big difference between posting a flight number on a website somewhere and actually helping out by notifi- notifying people. Um, every airline is perfectly capable of sending people a text to say their flight's delayed. So in other words, it's very little effort to reach out to everyone on a particular flight. Uh, airline can do that with a few keystrokes, whereas public health would take a very long time. So I think there's a heck of a lot more that they could do. And if airlines aren't interested in doing that, it would be my wish that Transport Canada would compel them to do that. It would be simply to pass a regulation to say, if you're notified that there's a COVID case on a particular flight, send a text just change the message. Don't say your flight was delayed. Say your flight was infected. It would be a very simple thing to do. And then people would actually be somewhat empowered to protect themselves and their families. So I, I, think, that, I think that would be a very small thing to ask airlines to do. Yeah, we're, we're speaking with infection control epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, Professor Colin Furness. I'm sure that people are listening right now. And, you know, some people have no choice. They've got to get on a flight. What do you say to them? What's your recommendation? Because they must be worried now, hearing what you said. Well, I think yeah, I think being worried is to be to be worried is to be safe. Um, so first of all, double check. Really, do you need to fly? I mean, really, do you need to? Need is a pretty elastic word. Assuming then that you do, um, well, if I were in that position, um, I would, if I could, try and take the first flight of a, in, a, in a day. Um, that way the airplane's been sitting overnight. Uh, I would look for a flight, if I could, that was as empty as possible. Um, I personally have never in my life flown business class, not even once, but I think now is the time to do it because you would have a little bit more space between you and people around you. Uh, you're at the front of the plane where you can get on last and get off first. Uh, so those are the sorts of things I would do and I would have a mask on absolutely all the time. And if I could do it, it would be a respirator mask. Wow. Yesterday, results from the largest serological survey conducted to date across the country were revealed. It's basically an antibody survey and it revealed that fewer than 1% of Canadians have had the virus that causes COVID-19. This is based on 10,000 
anonymized uh, blood donations. Should we take the results with a grain of salt? Um, the yes and no. I mean, there's, that's not surprising. That's that's actually not a surprising number. In some ways, that's that's good news. In some ways, that means that we have controlled it really well. In New York, I think it's 25 or 30 percent of the population have had antibodies. So, in order to get that number higher, you really have to go through a pretty dreadful situation. And we'd rather not do that. So, being vulnerable also means that we've managed to control it. The other thing, though, about about that is that's not a that's not a random sample. I mean, to really know what the prevalence is, you actually want to very carefully sample all the way across the country in a way that, that would be completely random. And, and the number may be a bit different, but my guess is it wouldn't be much different. And so yeah. good news that we've got it under control and bad news that we're vulnerable. I, I think it's interesting that you uh, also hit on what I was thinking. This it really doesn't represent Canadians at large because we're talking about people that give blood. They're a group that may be more socially conscious. So they may have, because of who they are, been adhering to best practices better than most people when it comes to physical distancing, washing your hands, making sure you self-isolated. So, so these people would most likely be uh, the safest people around. Um, yes, and they would also be, I'm not even sure about their habits, but demographically, they're probably the healthiest. There's a lot of mm. conditions and things that would make you not able or not want to give blood. So you, you're, you're choosing certainly a very healthy section of the population. And the, actually, whether, whether they're more likely to be carrying antibodies and have had COVID and not know it or less likely, it's hard to know. But one way or the other, even if we're off by 100%, you know, then it's only about 2% of Canadians, that, that doesn't actually change the reality. We're, we're vulnerable. You know, 90, something like 98, 99% of us don't have those antibodies. It's good news that we haven't gone through uh, dreadful outbreaks to, to raise that number. We need a vaccine. That's really what we need. Um, the concept of herd immunity or, or enough people being, uh, being immune, that what it takes to get there, well, that's what we're watching in the United States. Now, they're only at about 20% now, I think. I think 15, 20% across the country. So they're going to have to go through months and months of what they've been, what they've been experiencing. I don't think anyone wants that. But what does it say about the fact that antibodies uh, might not last as long as we think as well? I mean, there, we, more than uh, 1% could have been exposed, but the antibodies just aren't, aren't remaining in their, uh, in their systems. Yeah, that's a good point, and that's not, that's not quite knowable yet. There is a study recently that showed, uh, and it was pretty, pretty compelling, that suggests that people who've had very mild COVID, asymptomatic COVID, or only a very mild situation, never actually produce that many antibodies, and they go right back down to baseline within about a month. So um, going back to that, that sample, uh, where only 1% had antibodies, what that's really saying is we think 1% had significant COVID. There could have been dozens more who had it, but it was a fleeting encounter much like we get with the common cold variants of, of, of coronavirus. And yes, uh, not a lot of persistence in antibodies. But our immune system's complicated. There's T cells as well. It's not just an antibody response, and we haven't been testing for those. So it's, our, our understanding is still somewhat sketchy. And the other oh. thing, of course, there's, there's five different kinds of antibodies. We only really understand three of them. And they're really? Always, yeah, they're not always behaving the way we expect them to. And when we're looking at vaccine news, and, and the vaccine announcement says we've we've provoked antibody responses, that's fantastic news, but it doesn't let us conclude that that confers immunity. So there's still a gap in our understanding between antibodies that we generate and our ability to ward off the disease. Oh, wait a minute. You've just opened up a can of worms. I was going to let you go, but now that I have you started on these five different types of antibodies, I mean, 
Um, are are there some that are stronger than others, or what, what differentiates the antibodies? Um, we're getting outside my area of expertise because I'm not an immunologist, but my okay. my sketchy understanding is that there's probably an evolutionary role that antibodies uh, are produced or evolved in different ways according to the different kinds of diseases that that we or different kinds of assaults on our body that our immune system can can cope with and you know one is is around allergies one is a big question mark we just don't know there's there's one that shows up mostly in our blood one that shows up mostly in our lymph nodes so these antibodies have have a role they're different uh, they're complementary and again with a novel disease it's it's not immediately clear what is the optimal cocktail of antibodies to confer immunity. Toronto and Peel are the only regions not entering stage three today. As I uh, get set to let you go and, and start your weekend or whatever you have to do with your day, um, what are you uh, advising people keep in mind as we enter stage three? Are you at all nervous or concerned? I'm very concerned. I'm extremely concerned. I am happy that Toronto and Peel are not going into stage three. The longer we can stay out of stage three, the better. Now, the problem with the province's plan is that if you want playgrounds, you also have to accept bars. And I think that is um, not the way we should manage a pandemic. So uh, I'd like to see our playgrounds open. I'd like to see people outside. But to the extent to which stage three means that we can start going to bars and casinos, I think that's a travesty. That is exactly what we don't want to do to manage COVID. Now, I'm sympathetic to bar owners, and I'm very sympathetic to people who like to go to bars, but people can party outside, and we can, we can pay bar owners to stay home. Uh, I think it's, it's not worth it, because we've seen globally, everywhere, where bars open and nightclubs open and, and restaurants open, we see a giant spike in COVID cases, and we're starting to see that across Canada. It's not giant yet, uh, but we're seeing it, and a lot of it is related to those, and this is not what we should be doing. We we, we're making a choice that I think is very foolish. I'm about to open up the phone lines here to talk about uh, how universities, post-secondary students are heading back to school this fall, but it'll be mostly online. And so the tough question is about campus living. Should they stay or should they go? What would you advise someone sending, you know, their kid to their, they're starting year one at post-secondary. Um, uh, do they go to, do you advise that they go to residence and, and stay there or should you stay at home? That's a very, very tough call. I think if for a region that isn't in stage three, that is to say if the bars aren't open, I would feel more confident saying your kids should come because universities are being very careful and because we don't have a lot of community spread right now. But we also know that we're getting most increasing cases in people in their 20s and, and to some extent in their 30s. So we know the, the it's going to bars and parties that are an issue. And so think about the personality and the safety characteristics of your of your child. Um, what do you think? Are they going to be able to, to resist the siren song of, of close proximity without masks and, and, and higher levels of risk? Um, thinking about where the community spread is happening and what the what the personality is of, of your child, you know, I think it could be yes or it could be no for different families, just depending on those things. Dr. Uh, Professor Furness, you've been extremely generous with your time today, so I'm going to let you go and, and have yourself a safe and happy weekend. Thank you, you too.